0: You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 13. this morning we're going to be reading out of chapter 13 verses 44 to the end of the chapter 52 so acts it's on page 922 of the pew bible acts chapter 13 and we'll read verses 42 or 44 through 52. Hear the word of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, in Pisidian Antioch, Paul and Barnabas were in the local synagogue on the Sabbath The Jewish leaders, you'll remember, had invited Paul to bring a word of exhortation. He was preaching. And so he proclaimed the gospel, focusing on the death and resurrection of Christ. He said, let it be known to you that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that's the foundation we remembered of all other blessings that we receive in Christ. The forgiveness of sins. It paves the way for our acceptance with God. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, it means that there is no condemnation. If sin is pardoned, then there is nothing more that justice can demand. And that's good news. That's why David says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And those who listened to Paul preach that sermon were greatly edified, and they pleaded to hear him again. And I think it illustrates for us just how preaching of God's word is intended to edify the church, to build up the church. You see, Paul's apostolic authority was given to him for building up and not for tearing down. It was given not for destroying others, but for preparing the bride of Christ. That's a huge responsibility. And there are many things in fallen man's history and experience that must be torn down and destroyed. We know that. His pride and self-conceit. We need to tear those things down. His rebellion and sinful desires, his willfulness and presumption and self-sufficiency and carnal lust these things need to be torn down. But Paul's authority was given not so much for that as to focus on building up. He was not to serve his own ambition, and I've known pastors like that, and perhaps so have you. They're tyrants. They're like wolves in sheep's clothing. But Paul suggests here or at least illustrates for us that he was appointed as a servant and not as a Lord. And the authority that we have as ministers of the gospel is ministerial and declarative only. Those are very important words. Paul declared the truth of Christ. It's declarative. That's his authority. And Paul... Ministered to his beloved bride. That's ministerial. So we declare and we minister. That's the extent of our authority, and it's meant for building up. And that's what we find in Pisidian Antioch. His ministry was greatly edifying. They were banging down the door to hear it again. So the next Sabbath, almost the whole city, we're told, is gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And obviously his preaching had made an impact. The two missionaries returned to the synagogue where the great crowd is assembled, and it was a remarkable phenomenon that was not lost upon the Jewish leadership. They grew intensely jealous over the presence of all those people. It's one thing to preach Christ and the forgiveness of sins to the Jews. It's another thing entirely in their minds to say that the Gentiles are on equal footing with the Jews. So the leadership was angry. How dare you include these dogs among the covenant people? And so they began to contradict the preaching of Paul. They were like hecklers, interrupting everything Paul was saying. But he preached Christ. He preached the cross and the resurrection and salvation in his blood. And the Jews wanted nothing to do with the full inclusion of Gentile believers. You and me. And it was a very hostile environment filled with radical division. And of course, it was just as Jesus himself had predicted in his discussion with the disciples. Do you remember what he said in Luke 12? Let me quote it for you. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Luke 12, 51. Now that might seem odd, given that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. He does bring peace to those who are burdened with sin, and he relieves their guilt, and in so doing, he reconciles them to the Father. He cleans their conscience. That's peace. But among unbelievers, the gospel will arouse fierce opposition. Their hearts are hard I was one of them at one time. I know this. My heart was hard. My neck was stiff. My soul was unrepentant. I hated the gospel. Why? Because it exposes my sin. It calls me to repentance and it humbles my pride. And of course, unbelievers, we're told in scripture, are opposed to parting with their cherished sins and submitting to Christ. And sometimes... The gospel will even divide the closest of relationships. Perhaps some of you have experienced this. Parents and children. Brothers and sisters. Husbands and wives. And Jesus foresaw this when he said that one's enemies will be those of his own household. Because the gospel divides due to the sinful corruption of the human heart. One person determines to keep his sins while another person is willing to give them up. That's division. And we can be saddened by it, but it should come as no surprise. We must really strive as far as we can to be at peace with all men and women, but do never forget that the truth of Christ will often arouse opposition And what strikes me this morning is the way that Paul and Barnabas pushed back on the hecklers. It's as if they were saying, look, it was necessary to preach the word to you Jews first. That was God's will. But you thrust it aside and you've refused to listen to the gospel message. So we have no alternative but to cease and desist in offering you salvation. we have no alternative but to cease and desist in offering you salvation. There is in this life no more solemn or sobering condition than that. When God gives over a sinner to himself, when he leaves him to his own desires, three times in Romans chapter 1, It says God gave them up, meaning I think that he withdrew all of his restraining grace. He left them alone in their sin. They were abandoned to their sinful desires. They are without hope in the world. That is the most solemn and sobering condition that you can have in this world. The Jews to whom Paul was preaching were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And therefore, the apostle says to them, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And by repudiating the preaching of Christ, they forfeited salvation. They condemned themselves, not in word, not necessarily in thought, but by their conduct. By rejecting and contradicting God's word, they certified their place in hell. That's what he's saying. It was as if the judge himself passed sentence from the heavenly bench. You judge yourselves unworthy. And that means that God chooses to use gospel preaching as a double edged sword, as it were. It's used to save some, and it's used to condemn others. We're an aroma of life to life to those who are being saved and an aroma of death to death to those who are perishing. By means of preaching Christ crucified, he is pleased to save sinners. But by the very same means, he leaves all the rest without excuse. So Paul tells the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What that teaches me is that no one ever walks away from a sermon the same way that he came. He either accepts or rejects. There is no other option. There is no such thing as neutrality. Some, by sheer neglect or indifference, judge themselves unworthy. The Jews were opposing Paul's message, and they rejected the very means that God would use to save them. Because it's only an instrument through which the Spirit is pleased to save sinners. And if he wanted to, right now, the Holy Spirit could regenerate and save souls immediately without any preacher. He could do that. He doesn't need any other medium than his own sovereign power, but for his own reasons, he chooses to save through preaching. And that doesn't mean that everybody who listens to a sermon is converted because the Holy Spirit is sovereign. It's his work and he does what he wants He makes the ministry of the word effectual as a means of saving sinners. And without his power, without the Holy Spirit being present to enlarge hearts, to open minds, to give light, without his power, preaching is nothing more than a long speech. I remember my son, when he was a kid, was asked, what does your dad do for a living? Oh, he talks so long. (laughs) It is only when the Holy Spirit breathes on the word preached that it bears fruit. So I think that's an encouragement for us to pray routinely for the effectiveness of the ordinary means and preaching in particular. You see, our part is to apply ourselves to this means and to wait upon the Lord. And if we've been awakened to our need and the Spirit does that, If we've been awakened to our need, then we should pray for a regenerate heart. The efficacy is totally out of our control, but listening attentively is not. If we ignore our Bibles, if we are absent from preaching, then we're no better than the Jews. We judge ourselves unworthy of eternal life because we reject the very means that God said he'll use. You know, some poor people go through their entire lives without paying attention to the word of God. How foolish is that? Why would anybody in their right mind forfeit eternal joy out of sheer neglect? And I have to say that I would be there if it hadn't been for the Holy Spirit. It happens all the time. People get caught up in the diversions of the world. And there are so many good things out there that are simply diversions. It's taking off our focus from the things of Christ. I do funerals routinely. You know that. I've said it before. I do funerals routinely. And when we gather in that little chapel, people always feel bad about the deceased. Oh, the poor guy. Look at him lying there. How sad. And they genuinely feel sorry for the deceased. But few, if any of them, grasp the very real prospect of their inevitable death. We're told in Ecclesiastes 7 that the house of mourning is supposed to stir up thoughts of eternity. And yet those mourners come and they go with no thought given to their own demise. No matter how many times I say it. Someone asked, what must I do to go to hell? And the answer, nothing. Do nothing. Hebrews 2.1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Just drift. Let's be like the early church and devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching Of course, Paul's message excited the Gentiles who were listening to him. He said, we're turning to the Gentiles for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And of course, they were thrilled. They rejoiced, glorified God, and it was great news. And many of them trusted in Christ, but not all believed. Let's not have this Sentimental view of that episode. Not all believed. Some Gentiles did not rejoice. And that's why it says in verse 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you catch that? One of the most significant phrases in the New Testament. Only those who were appointed to eternal life believed. And doesn't it not prove that salvation is the result ultimately not of our personal choice, but of sovereign decree? Who did the appointing? Certainly not the believing Gentiles themselves. Luke was referring to God's purpose and not man's decision. You see, there is a book, and Scripture teaches this, that there is a book, one that we can't see, in which all those who are, have been, or will be saved have their names inscribed. It's a heavenly book. And Revelation 21, 27 says this, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter heaven. I didn't write that. That's not my speculation. That's Revelation 21, 27. Those whose names were written in that book had nothing to do with it. They were inscribed there by God and they were appointed by his decree. And that appointment came from on high. It did not come from down below. Just as you and I had absolutely nothing to do with our natural birth. So we have nothing to do with our spiritual rebirth. God appointed to eternal life those who believe in Jesus Christ. No one has ever, as far as I know, discussed their birth beforehand with their parents. Never happened. No one can ever say that they decided to be born. They were passive. A person doesn't even have existence until he's actually conceived. And likewise... You draw the parallel. We were spiritually dead before becoming converted by the Holy Spirit. A dead person can't discuss anything. And that means that you and I would never have chosen Christ if we had not been appointed to eternal life. God chose a certain number, a remnant of sinners and appointed them to eternal life. That's what it's teaching. And this is a mysterious truth. I have to admit, it's not easy to grasp, but the Bible here is explicit. Ephesians 1. Elder Parkin read this. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And the Lord didn't do this because he needed to. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need angels or any human or any creature whatsoever. God is totally and absolutely self-sufficient, and he stands in need of nothing. He appointed sinners like us to salvation simply because he loves us. And there is nothing whatsoever in the elect to distinguish them from others. Robert Trail put it well when he said this. Peter was no better than Judas. Judas nor Judas any worse than Peter. Cain was no worse than Abel, and Abel was not better than Cain till grace made the difference. Jacob and Esau were the same until grace made all the difference. There was nothing in either one of those boys to recommend them to God. The distinction was made merely by God's sovereign good pleasure. I remember when I was in seminary a few years ago, not too many, I had a vigorous discussion with a fellow student. Now, I had come from an Armenian background. I had come from a charismatic, dispensational background, so I, I had been trained and taught and I had gotten over the hump. So then I was used, I'm having this discussion with this fellow student, and for at least an hour, an hour and a half, we talked about and we argued over the doctrine of election. And we looked at the biblical texts that had direct bearing upon the doctrine. A lot of ground was covered as I tried to persuade him of distinguishing grace. And he loved Christ. I'm not questioning his salvation. He loved Christ. He believed in the authority of the Bible. He was a very serious student. But he recoiled at this doctrine, insisting that if this were true, Then God's unfair. He kept coming back to that. And we live in a culture that despises making distinctions between people. Everybody's equal, every opinion counts, and there ought to be no distinctions. And I don't know if that's what influenced my friend, but he would not agree. If God distinguished between the elect and the non-elect, then he would be partial, he said. And I said, that's right. He is partial. He's an impartial judge, but he is a partial redeemer. He chooses some over others for no other reason than that he chooses them, because all have sinned and all deserve to be judged and all are worthy of condemnation. Every one of us. But if the Almighty God sees fit to extend mercy to some, why is that unfair? He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, as my friend said, every person should have opportunity to believe. Really? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Let's not judge the kingdom of God as if it were the United States of America. We call this land a land of opportunity. We call God's kingdom a realm of grace. And his grace is distinguishing. He is sovereign and he makes people to differ. And it's not hard to find passages to establish this doctrine. In the days of Nehemiah, for example, the Levites sang praise to God and they declared this. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram, it was the distinguishing grace of God that brought him out of idolatry. Just like a brand plucked from the fire, Abram was plucked from Chaldea. Or then again, the psalmist, he rejoices in the God who hears prayer. Then he says, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. So the blessed one, the believer, is chosen by God, distinguished from others. And he's given true faith in the Messiah and kept by the power of God. Consider our Lord's high priestly prayer. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. When did the Father give them to the Son? Was it not before time? You see, God is unchangeable. And so his plan to give them has to be unchangeable. From eternity, his purpose was to give this people to Christ. And then, of course, there is that clear statement of the Apostle Paul even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Not only before we had a being, but before the world had a beginning. We were chosen. We were distinguished by God and his eternal counsels, not because we're better than anybody else. (laughs) That's the mysterious thing. Why would he choose us? Sinful wretches. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to mention any other texts, but they could be multiplied. Those Gentiles who responded to Paul's message were appointed to eternal life It had nothing to do with their beauty or their talent or their wealth or their position. It depended on nothing in the people themselves. It depended upon God because he's under obligation to save no one. Nobody. He's indebted to no one. But he is pleased to save a remnant of the human race for himself. And this great foundational truth ought to be a source of great comfort, I think. The only reason for any difference between any of us and others is free grace. And those whom God passed by for reasons known only to him are just as eligible as you and me. All of us are unworthy, all of us are undeserving. So we boast not about ourselves, but our boast is in the Lord God, because he could have justly and with good reason left us to perish in our sins. And we could be out there doing whatever and never even darken the doors of a church. But he distinguished us from the mass of fallen humanity to believe in Jesus, because from eternity he set upon us his steadfast love and appointed us to eternal life. And that's why Paul says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's why Peter exhorts us to make our calling and election sure. Do you remember that in chapter one of his first epistle? We can't peer into God's eternal counsel, but we can examine ourselves. Do we trust in Christ? Do we receive Him as a Savior? Do we submit to Him as Lord? Spurgeon said it this way, there will be no doubt about his having chosen you when you have chosen him. Well, of course, as I wrap this up, there was in Pisidian Antioch resistance to the apostolic ministry. They stirred up persecution against them. And it's it's the ages long conflict between the godly and the ungodly. And when Paul and Barnabas were driven out, they shook off the dust from their feet. And it was a sudden and vivid gesture that symbolized the curse of God. Shaking off the dust from their feet. It signified, as far as I can tell, that even the dirt from that place was corrupt and profane. That's what it symbolized. It's derived, I think, from the same principle that undergirds the practice of removing your shoes. You remember when... Moses saw the burning bush. And this is what God says to him. Don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. So the dust from a sin cursed world should never defile holy ground. Take those shoes off. Because God's presence makes it holy. And the city that rejected Christ was so corrupt that even its dirt is profane. And the unbelieving inhabitants were so wicked that the very ground was evil. And such a gesture could not have been lost upon the Orthodox Jews. It was tantamount to calling them heathen. And such they were. Anyone who refuses to receive and rest upon Jesus is a heathen. Unclean. No one can encounter Christ in the gospel without increasing their responsibility. You have a privilege this morning, which is inestimable to hear the gospel. You have a responsibility this morning because you've heard the gospel. It's a reminder, I think, of how dangerous it is to reject the gospel. If you believe it, you have proof that God chose you from eternity. But if you reject or neglect it, the ground on which you walk is profane. You probably have heard about Elizabeth Barrett Browning. When Elizabeth Barrett Browning married her husband, Robert, her parents disapproved so strongly of her marriage that they disowned her. And it was a devastating blow, as you can imagine. Almost weekly, Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote love letters to her mother and father, pleading with them for reconciliation. They never once replied, ever. After 10 years of writing letters, Elizabeth received a very large box in the mail. And when she opened it, She found to her surprise, dismay, and heartbreak every single letter she had written to her parents, and not one of them had ever been opened. Not one. Their bitterness and their resentment had kept them from reading a single line that she had written. And today, those love letters are among the most beautiful in classical English literature. Had her parents opened and read even one of them, a reconciliation might have taken place. You know, God has written his love letter in the 66 books of the Bible. And in its pages, he expresses his love for the people for whom he gave his son. And sadly many refuse to even read it just like elizabeth's bitter parents we who have heard the gospel and responded in faith are immensely privileged because as david says blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts it makes no con- n- difference what your condition is in the world rich poor high low makes no difference if you're a christian you're blessed You have the guarantee of eternal life, a sure pledge of salvation and the inestimable privilege of dwelling in God's house. And it's all owing to God's distinguishing love that he's put upon us. May that be an encouragement to all of God's people this morning. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are amazed when we read in scripture that you have set your love upon us in Christ from eternity. It's something that's far beyond our ability to comprehend. And yet we believe it because you've revealed it. We thank you for it and pray that this will be an encouragement to us throughout the week and that we might express our gratitude by striving to conform ourselves to your word Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.